Welcome to the LSE Events Podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences. Uh, good evening, very well, everyone, and uh, welcome to this uh, hybrid event. My name is Francesco Caselli. I am a professor of economics here at the LSE and the head of the economics department. Um, normally, we start by saying uh, welcome to the LSE, to the speaker, but the speaker doesn't need to be welcomed to the LSE because she is uh, our very own uh, faculty member, Kay Eugene. She's an associate professor in the, the economics department, so my colleague. Um, and uh, Kayu is, of course, a um, very well-known uh, student of uh, China's economy, but also, uh, more generally, um, an accomplished scholar of uh, international finance, uh, international macro, international trade. And um, she will uh, focus the presentation tonight on her book, uh, The New China Playbook, which discusses the Chinese growth experience and the possible challenges that it faces. Some uh, organizational comments uh, for Twitter users. The hashtag for today's event is um, hashtag LSE New China. Uh, the event is being recorded and will uh, hopefully be made available as a podcast, uh, subject to no technical difficulties. Uh, there will be a chance to put questions to KU after the speech. Um, so for online audience, uh, you can submit your questions via the Q&A feature at the top left of your screen. Um, and then questions will reach me and uh, I will try to uh, uh, convey them to KU and of course there will be questions from the live audience. Um, when you ask questions, please let you know your name and affiliation. Um, Okay, I think we can get started. So uh, please uh, join me in welcoming K. Eugene. <clears throat> Thank you. Good evening, everybody. Thank you so much. It's a huge pleasure and privilege to be uh, here with you today and to share some observations about China based on my latest book. Now, of course, the study on China's economy will take volumes. Um, a course on it would take at least an academic term, if not a year. So given that we have about 40 minutes, um, let me organize my talk around three things. The China model, and the good, the bad, and the future that comes uh, with it. Now, many say that the Industrial Revolution was considered a miracle because living standards were raised by 75% within one human lifetime. Now, many in the generation born before me in China would have seen their living standards rise by 75 times within uh, their lifespan. And it's not just that China has grown the fastest for the longest period of time in human history, nor that poverty rate fell from 85% when the time I was around, I was born to effectively zero two years ago. But it's also the first time in history that a developing country with only 25% of living standards of advanced economies is able to do cutting edge technology on a broad scale. I remember the days when China was still a copier. It wasn't really that long ago, 10 years ago. It was the consummate proud imitator. So YouTube had its carbon copy in China called Youku. Uh, Yahoo was Sohu in China. And Apple, the company, and fruit, found its equivalent uh, in Xiaomi, which means little rice in China. And even the founder gave speeches wearing black turtlenecks. And by the way, we have our own copy of the San Francisco Bay Bridge, in case you wanted to visit it in China, too. Um, but today, it's a different thing. Just a few years later, China's leader in EVs, lithium battery, solar cells, 5G, and is neck and neck with really cutting edge things with the US on things like AI and quantum. According to an influential study published earlier last year, China is leading in 35 out of 44 cutting-edge technology research. 
And here in Europe, we're always talking about the green transition. Well, last year, China accounted for half of the renewable investment uh, in the world. And this young economy, because really the reforms and growth started from the early 80s, late 70s, went from copying to being copied by others. In recent years, it came up with lots of first-of-a-kind thing, like the bike-sharing app, or of course, as we all know, TikTok. Something that I find both remarkable and disquieting at the same time is that despite the fact that Frost has decidedly set on US-China relations, that today, four out of the five of the most downloaded apps in the US are Chinese. So all of this defies uh, conventional wisdom. Why? Because during China's rap most rapid period of growth, it consistently ranked bottom half in the world on really important indicators like rule of law, ease of doing business, or the corruption index. But probably perhaps most troubling to people in this part of the world is that it wasn't just an invisible hand at work, but highly visible, interfering, ubiquitous, heavy hand of the state, meddling with virtually all aspects of the Chinese economy. And so inevitably, we have come up with somewhat of a popular sport to predict the collapse of the Chinese economic system. There are six different versions of it, starting from the 1980s. Every few years, you know, there's a, there's a scholar, Gordon Chang, that keeps on predicting China's collapse, each with a different story. And there's a different version every few years of a new collapse story. Uh, 1998, economists figure, will China be next in the midst of the Asian financial crisis and the great fall of China, 2015, uh, with the rise of shadow banking system. And of course, uh, today, there's currently one now, peak China, based on the notion that China is going to look like Japan, a nursing home uh, with an imploding banking system. It reminds me of the Mark Twain quote, news of my death is greatly exaggerated. And there are two really prevailing views that are just mutually contradictory. China collapse theory and China threat theory. Which one is it going to be? So what do we keep getting wrong about China? That's kind of the one of the things I want to talk about in my book. Why has it become the land that failed to fail, as New York Times put it? And more importantly, looking into the future, how is it able to leapfrog and dominate emerging new sectors as a developing country? Now, I'm going to mention two of what I believe are the biggest misunderstandings about China. The first is how the model works, how the model actually works. It's neither socialism nor capitalism conventionally defined, although I'm not really sure any of these labels are that helpful these days. And it wasn't simply just a matter of markets over Mao, as they say, as people believe. Now, of course, giving people proper incentives was immensely powerful. It was really at the essence of the growth. And that happened after 1978. It did a lot and explains a lot. But it probably wasn't enough to get things done so quickly to enact system-wide changes in a very short spate of time. Think about the EV sector. China couldn't do combustion engine cars. And within 10 years, it became the biggest EV consumer and producer market currently. And it probably would have been inconceivable that China, a developing country, have the most number of innovation clusters in the world, defined as the highest density of inventors and scientific authors. According to the Global Innovation Index this year, there are 24 innovation clusters in China, ahead of the US, which is 21. Now, the second thing that we get wrong this is going a little bit beyond economics here, but I think really important, is a role of culture and history to play. Now, that's a thread, although it's not a focus in the book. Because in the end, they do shape values and preferences and affect economic behavior. Why does an American household save 2% and a Chinese household save 20, 35%? How can Chinese youth afford a property with prices that are higher than in San Francisco when the people's income there are only a fifth of San Francisco income levels. Well, it helps to have six wallets behind every youth coming from the family. So 
People make intergenerational household decisions rather than just rely on individual decision making. The one-child policy, as we come to know, this radical uh, uh, reform that's meant to control population has fundamentally changed the socioeconomic landscape of China. And what I want to really underscore is that state capacity, that centralized bureaucracy, the ever so complex relationship, governance and administrative relations between the center and the localities, which is a theme that I'm going to come back to over and again, all has a lot to do with the cultural and historical legacies of the nation. So, of course, economic miracle was the good, but it's not all rosy. Just look at what's happening now. <laughs> Years of accumulation of bad habits in Chinese economy, like addiction to credit. The Chinese economy today is faltering. Growth has slowed down significantly. China's debt is at all-time high of close to 280% of GDP. There are 400 million square meters of vacant housing. Its real estate, real estate sector currently is in the ICU. And a few years ago, the shadow banking system ballooned at a rate that was faster than in the US, leading up to the Great Recession of 2007-2009. So I'm going to argue that the good and the bad, the miracle and the malaise, are two sides of the same coin. They are to be understood together as an integrated whole of this very unique political economy model, which I will describe. They are not disparate phenomena and should not be treated as such. So in the end, this what we call high growth, high cost model, both of them are true, is at the very essence of the China playbook. So what is the model? It's gotten a few new names, the Chinese economy, managed capitalism, government-steered market economy, the mayor economy, which is my favorite, all suggest a critical role of the state. So we usually think of China as being extremely centralized, as if all the decisions are made from the top, made at the top. But really, a more accurate description of the model is political centralization coupled with an extreme form of economic decentralization. So let me show you an example. So this is a graph of technology unicorns or private companies that are valued at above 2 billion US dollars. Now we have the leader of the pack, which is the US and China and Europe, which lags quite, quite a bit behind. Um, if you look at the top 25 internet companies, pretty much half of them are going to be US, half of them are going to be Chinese, right? But what's really interesting, and I'm not going to focus on the numbers here, is that they're actually distributed all over China, except the western provinces or the central provinces, the really, really poor areas. You have these unicorns in more than just Beijing, Shanghai, and Shenzhen. It's really pretty much spread all over different cities. There are cities you've never heard of, like uh, second-tier cities, that have uh, created the global quantum avenue. Um, and behind them is the story of mayors. So I just want to show you a figure of how important that local economy is. This is, this is there are 1,500, more than 1,500 number of local government guidance funds. What are they? They are public-private investment platforms to advance local industrial and technological goals. They amount to something like almost $4 trillion. And they're spread around. Again, not just in Beijing, Shanghai, and Shenzhen, but all over the place. So what's the story here? I call this the mayor economy. It sounds funnier in Chinese because mayor economy and market economy sounds pretty much the same thing. So it's a slant span of the word, but um, it's a very different concept, obviously. So these mayors, or provincial party secretaries all around China, are running around building mini Silicon Valleys all over China. Places that you've never heard of, cities within one province. One would focus on chip design, another would focus on packaging, another would focus on manufacturing. And even the city of Suzhou, for example, which is known for traditional gardens, beautiful gardens and literature, has something like 1,500 autonomous vehicle-related companies. Um, and all of, these compete, all of these mayors compete with each other around China 
uh, for uh, uh, the best companies, as if they're in a beauty contest. Now, an example I like to make, and this is by no means the only one, there's so, so many, uh, of Hefei, which is a small city in comparison in China, it's about five million people, um, has staked a company called NIO. NIO is a global front runner of EVs, and their cars are going to be about driven, they're, they're going to be driven in this country very soon. And they built an entire supply chain around this EV company, uh, organizing, manufacturing uh, capacity, battery makers, control systems, coordinating everything. And these governments shower them with preferential policies, um, not just financial stuff. Yes, they help them coordinate local uh, banks, bank lending, which is really important for these companies. But they also help them attract talent. They subsidize housing. They train workers, students leverage social capital to help them raise uh, venture money. They would do, they would go about um, everything they can uh, to attract the best entrepreneurs. Um, so that um, is kind of how it works on the mayor economy. And the, the idea is, oops, 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 this didn't, was not supposed to come out this way. Let's, uh, okay, so let me just talk it through. Um, what's, what is the incentive of these mayors, right? Well, first of all, the key control of the central government towards the local government is personnel control, meaning that their fate, their career depends on, or their promotion depends on uh, the central government's decision. Now, it used to be up until very recently that if you hit the GDP targets, you know, uh, brought in investment, uh, you'd be much more likely to be promoted. And there's lots and lots of evidence, uh, empirical evidence on that. Um, but even beyond that, the mayor is really an equity stakeholder of the entire uh, locality, of their jurisdiction. Because by bringing in good companies, helping good private companies, what do they get? Well, they get more jobs, which is really important. Um, retail sector, service sector. Uh, they can build an industrial clutter, and even the real estate which they own is worth more. Now, half of the revenues, fiscal revenues, of the majority of local governments derive on land sales. So it's creating that ecosystem that helps them do well. So they are actually extremely friendly with private entrepreneurs. They're pals. They need them. The state needs the private just as much as the private needs the state. And I'd argue that the state even needs more the private even more now than it has ever been. And with this, when they create a good economy, they get promoted up the political ranks of um, the system. And uh, they can even become uh, uh, the most powerful leaders uh, in, uh, uh, in China. Uh, lots of these provincial secretaries and governors, you have to go that path to become the ultimate on the standing committee uh, and so forth. And even more so, another really key attribute of the system is that there's intense comp competition among the layer mayors. Right? They compete with each other. So that is a matter of accountability and a mechanism that you wouldn't otherwise see. Now, if you are a company working in a particular locality and you don't get a friendly government, what can you do? You simply flock away and move to another place and they will lose that ability to contribute to the local GDP. So um, that is what actually is incentivizing them to lend a helping hand rather than a grabbing hand, uh, as is generally presumed to be the case when there's decentralization. Um, I'm going to have to, oops, okay. So the second feature of this model is the enormous power that the state yields. And the Chinese state is extremely rich and extremely powerful. And there are three aspects of the power. One is the resources they control. Uh, one is the ability to allocate. And third is mobilization. Land, for instance, is owned by the state. State banks are controlled by the state, state enterprises. And the resources that they have, the monopolies that they, 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 they have, are all part of the state. And it's able to allocate not only resources wherever it wants to, whether it's towards state enterprises, towards certain sectors, but it's also able to allocate losses on particular groups of people. And what I mean by that is that without much political impediment, losers and winners will have to accept the outcome. If you need to move an entire village to build a dam, 
it's done. Um, if you have to close down some factories to make room for a new industry, it's done. Now, of course, we might cringe at all of this, right, at the thought of this, but this was the price of China's rapid modernization. Uh, the third feature is paternalism and tools of mass intervention. Now, intervention, there's so many, so many degrees of, uh, of freedom for the Chinese government. This includes approvals, licenses, administrative power, financial tools of all kinds. And the state holds virtually the keys and the levers to all aspects of the economy, and that is part of the central planning legacy. Now, of course, this relates to the more problematic aspects of the Chinese economy coming to the bad. Now, paternalism is a common theme throughout history in China. When the emperor protected its subjects in return for their deference, all the way to the modern governments looking out for its people and including the Chinese parents who will always believe that they know better what's best for you. And it's not so easy to understand why the state gets to play such an active role in the stock markets and real estate markets, not to mention decide on how many kids you can have, whether male models should be allowed to appear effeminate and wear lipstick, or how much time your children should be able to spend playing video games. That's all part of the paternalistic package. Um, now, I know that we here just can't understand why there hasn't been an absolute revolt against this highly paternalistic interventional state. But again, this comes back to some of the cultural leg legacies and a general preference, according to a vast number of international surveys, whether we believe them or not, of these cultural differences. For instance, the general preference for security over liberty. There's a massive uh, disparity between an American and a Chinese on that. But of course, values um, can also change over time. Now, these interventions, the meddling, have caused a topsy-turvy and highly boisterous financial system. Now consider the following fact. Between 2000 and 2018, the Chinese economy grew four, four times in real terms. But if you invested in a diversified portfolio of Chinese stocks, you would have gotten a real return of zero over this period. You would have done much better investing in a Brazilian or Indian stocks, which would have tripled in value. The only stock market index that performed worse than the Chinese A shares is the Japanese Nikkei, again, over the period where the Chinese economy grew the fastest. And what's more, not only has it had the worst performance, it's also substantially riskier than, say, the US markets. Why? Well, the Chinese government intervenes in these markets all the, all the time. Um, including real estate, both on the way up and on the way down, often calling on Team China, state banks or state enterprises to come in to help, all in the name of protecting retail investors, again, coming back to that paternalistic theme. Um, but the truth is that they really just add uncertainty to the mix. More traders trying to front run these policy changes, and the result is that these retail investors never learn they never learn and need constant uh, sources of protection. And we're, we're seeing that uh, currently as well. Similarly, that big brother or father paternalistic image, banks and big companies <coughs> believe themselves to be too big and too important to fail because the central bank always, the central government always comes to the rescue. And that has created highly distortive uh, behavior. Just look at Evergrande, the real estate property, thinking that it would be of no exception. It went on to do some very outrageous things. And by the way, this is not an exception. Uh, companies that have trillions of RMB of debt, it's, it's not just uh, Evergrande. There are many, many, many. But it went on to do outrageous things like buy soccer clubs, build its own EV as a property developer. Lots of businesses are also investing in real estate that had nothing to do uh, with real estate. <coughs> So this sense of paternalism coupled with these motley of tools of the Chinese government can do a lot of either protection or harm, uh, depending on how you look at it. But it's true that another fact is that China for the last 40 years, despite being a developing country and that being a common malaise, has never had a systemic financial crisis, uh, something that can and substantially spill over onto the rest of the world and rattle markets at a global level. Why? 
because the major banks are state-owned, because the central government is considered as a credible a lender of last resort with an unparalleled ability to coordinate different players in the system and to tightly control capital flows. This is not something that most economies, most market, market economies can enjoy. So this constant tension that the state faces between wanting to let go and liberalize but exerting control, that's going to be around. That's very much part of that essence of that playbook. And so I don't see China really truly becoming a free market economy given these uh, cultural and uh, um, institutional attributes. So this leads me to the bad. Right? We talked about, about the stock market. But really, the point here is that all these economic malaise is coming from exactly the same model that has produced such powerful economic and technological results. So in 2022, the value of Chinese housing market was twice that of the U.S. Astonishing, right? One time I visited, I visited a remote mountainous resort town, and I saw an avenue as wide as the Champs-Élysées. So I asked my taxi driver, why do they think they needed such a gargantuan road? And his answer was, well, we've got a new mayor. And yeah, that's the reality. The debt problem that everybody is talking about in China today ultimately traces back to the indebtedness of local governments. $18 trillion of explicit and implicit debt of these, uh, of these local officials. Why? Very easy to explain with the model. They've been on a spending spree to increase their local GDP. Now, if you're the central government and you're looking at them and looking at the yardstick and measurements and parameters of sex, you can't, you can't tell whether it's because they're productive and competent or because they've spent, just spent more on roads and infrastructure. So what do you as a local official do? Well, you're going to borrow. You're going to borrow and spend. And again, there's lots of evidence of this. Empirical studies, local officials who fall behind in growth targets tend to compensate it with borrowing. Those who are coming to the end of his or her term, waiting to be promoted, are more likely to be reckless in helping local firms get cheap capital and land, and so that these firms can have an outsized um, growth. And of course, then these companies go out on another borrowing splurge based on the recently acquired cheap land. And so this real estate craze is very much a mayoral economic phenomenon. So the local governments are actually technically not allowed to borrow as decreed by the central government. What do they do? They set up entities called local government financing vehicles and use things like land as collateral to borrow and binge on things like more real estate investment um, and infrastructure, effectively inflating the shadow banking system a few years back. Now, in the earlier years, industrialization was all the craze because that was how you got the GDP targets through investment, so forth. And that trend suddenly morphed into an urbanization craze. Why? Because it was even quicker to deliver uh, GDP targets and fill local coffers um, with, um, uh, by rolling out property. And as we mentioned, half of these uh, governments rely on land sales. Uh, sorry, more than, more than half of the government revenues derive from uh, land sales. But that is obviously coming to the end. But guess what? They're using the same model, the same local government vehicle platforms uh, to do the next big thing, which is uh, renewables. Um, so that leads to another important fallacy of the model, and that is one that has caused substantial uh, international controversy, and that is overcapacity. Uh, uh, oh. Nope. Okay, um, so whatever sector the magic wand of the Chinese state touches, whether it is in steel, cement, flat glass, flat glass, wind power equipment, and now EVs turn into the global deluge. So the global demand for EVs in the next few years is 26.3 million units, and China will be supplying 37 million of that 26 million units. Okay, thank you. <clears throat> Demand for batteries in the world 
will be less than 40% of China's production capacity by 2025. So overcapacity is really just everywhere with, these, um, with, this, with this mayoral economy. It's not good for the world, although parenthetically it could accelerate the green transition. As we know, wind, solar, and all that have really um, uh, led to a global, uh, uh, China led the global, blue, l global um, boom in this. But in truth, it's also not good for China. It leads to a race to the bottom from too much competition, very low profitability of firms, and of course, inefficiency, waste, redundancy, and an abundance of non-performing uh, loans for banks. And it's all the more exacerbated because of the competition from the local mayors. So the ultimate question we should pose is, was all this actually worth it? Was the benefit of this man-made acceleration greater than the cost? It's hard to know what the counterfactuals would have been. Absent the entrepreneurial and developmental Chinese state, would the Chinese economy have done better or worse? Um, perhaps it's not a fair comparison because there is no real comparison that you can do with China, but uh, the most populous country next to China, India, uh, is, is one such comparisons. And in 1978, it was by most measures doing much better than China. Uh, uh, on uh, lots of uh, human uh, development indicators. It hasn't had the same kind of state capacity and mobilization as China has, and as facts will tell us, it is a very different world uh, today. So this finally leads me to the future. In this new phase, it's really no longer about catching up. China has plans to strive to dominate emerging strategic sectors where there's no clear technological leadership, where there are no powerful incumbents in the West. Um, it's no longer about picking winners, old-style industrial policy, but about actively changing the economic structure of the economy, targeting industries that will shape the future of all other technologies, about creating national systems that take inspiration from the Apollo program and Manhattan Project that links national labs and universities and industries. It's about leapfrogging, no longer about catching up in sectors that use data, green tech, smart manufacturing. It's about vastly expanding the new type of infrastructure, communications, internet of things, industrial internet, satellite, AI, computing, blockchain, and rolling out data and processing uh, centers. Now the difference between now and in the past is that there are real resources behind it. Before it was a lot of talk. There wasn't really the money behind it. But the goal currently is to raise trillions of dollars of industrial guidance fund at the national, subnational level, another few trillions of dollars of investment in these kind of infrastructure in the next few years. And another difference is that there's much more of a market discipline uh, than there has ever been. Again, contrary to conventional wisdom, the state is no longer dominating the show in the new agenda. Whereas in the past, the SOEs were really called upon to do things like strategic important things, innovation, the private companies are in charge today. You don't have to believe it, but just look at the numbers. 80% of the innovations accounted for by the private sector. They provide 80% of urban employment, 70% of industrial uh, output, and so forth. And frankly, the state just can't compete on things like research, talent hiring, the way that companies like Alibaba, Tencent, or Baidu can. They don't have the same kind of market sensitivity. And of course, they're not driven by the absolute cutthroat, cutthroat competition that leaves these domestic private companies no choice but to innovate and to leapfrog. And the state, too, is actually evolving. These local mayors, they started out by directly investing in these companies, so really acting like venture capitalists. Now they have morphed into fund-to-fund managers that leverage the expertise of the private sector to decide on where the money is put and which companies to invest. Uh, but still, private companies will be nudged and steered. To develop and shape general purpose technologies for the, for, fit for the future, there will be big ticketed items and patient capital that only the state can provide. 5G base stations and power stations, EV charging stations will require trillions of dollars of investment. It is helpful, dare I say, that when the Chinese government rolls out four million EV charging stations around the country, as opposed to only 160,000 in the US today, 
that's really important for system-wide changes like EVs. 160,000 in the US, that's less than how many uh, China builds in a given year. And also funding for high-tech companies with long investment cycles, very uncertain returns, will need a big commitment from investors that just don't make simple financial return calculations. So one of the most successful quantum companies today, again coming back to this Hefei government, well, no private money wanted to invest in it, uh, given its business model or believed in its eventual success, but it is a global leader today, funded and staked by the local government. So the jury is still out, this kind of new policy, sectoral targeting, techno-nationalism, whole the nation Olympic model may not work well. There's no doubt that there's already been a lot of waste with the big chips fund and all that, while there has been some level of success. And I don't know if throwing money at the problem really uh, solves the problem, maybe it does. Uh, again, this is the high cost, uh, high growth model that it's gonna pursue. Um, but against this tidal wave of geopolitical tensions, restrictions, a faltering economy, and this fiscal constraint that the Chinese government faces, it's gonna be a very difficult and unproven model for innovation. But that said, it has nonetheless inspired some copy, that model from others, and no less from the United States of America. Now, if anyone has read the recent speech of Jake Sullivan, Biden's national security advisor, on how to restore American competitiveness, well, it's pretty much the China model. It talks about the latest CHIPS Act, Science Act, Inflation Reduction Act, and a whole lot of, quoting him, unapologetic use of state industrial policies. So actually these two countries really copy each other. You know, China copies American free markets, America copies China's entrepreneurial state, and then they put <coughs> fingers at each other. Um, and finally, I'd be remiss not to mention something I believe to be important for the future that lies beyond the political economy sphere, which we've spent 30 minutes talking about. And that's a radically new, different generation that will be steering the Chinese economy in about 10 years' time. In my book, this is a theme that weaves the chapter together. They are so different from the previous generations that have gone through the Cultural Revolution, Great Famine, seeing the huge vicissitudes of the Chinese economy and the psychological and physical hardship that they had to endure. This new generation was born after the one-child policy, hugely confident, privileged, um, and prosperous. That spirit of the Foxconn worker, the one that we used to read about, that used to opt for three shifts a night, is no longer in the new generation of highly educated, leisure-loving, world-traveling, confident, and creative youth, unwilling to save for a rainy day. And with the help of fintech and e-commerce platforms like Alibaba, with one click, college students have no qualms about just clicking, borrowing to buy a lipstick, or a new phone. So something like 85% of consumer credit is actually taken out by people under the age of 35. They spend twice as much as the previous generation on things like food and apparel, despite earning a lot less. So will they, can they, be China's solution of the constant pain of not enough consumption and demand? The new generation has also been a golden era for women, who, thanks to the one-child policy, has enjoyed an enormous rise in status, evidenced by the fact that, for instance, 42% of business leaders and public companies from the cohort born in the 1990s are women, as opposed to only 15% for those cohort born um, the cohort of the 1960s. And the closing of the gender gap is way faster than what would have been predicted by uh, the rise, basic rise in income. Apart from their consumerism, um, they have a glaring sense of social consciousness that ranges from concerns for worker rights to animal rights in far-flung, really remote places. And so these are all, I believe, to be signs of a maturing economy uh, and a society whose values are finally catching up with the pace of development. So I've painted a black and white, I have not painted a black and white uh, picture for you when it comes to China, because it isn't really black and white. Um, many of what's considered to be irreconcilable paradoxes are not necessarily so. The good and the bad in the future can actually coexist. 
And so I like to think about the rise and the still uncertain success of China um, making its way up to hopefully a rich country status as simply a cycle of renewal. And eventually that baton is passed down to others because there's a certain advantage of backwardness that allows close followers to catch up and also avoid, avoid mistakes of first movers. And so China today is charting into an unknown territory and taking on massive risks. And that is the very essence of uh, the new China playbook going forward. I hope that with my description, I hope it's one thing is clear, at least to me, that there's no universal model of success, that there's perhaps more than one way of making things work. And even though we keep on being indoctrinated of the contrary, um, so I think it's helpful to see the world using multiple lenses rather than just one. And maybe that's the glimpse of hope uh, in a world where J.F. Kennedy once said that we must make safe for diversity. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Kei, your wonderful uh, presentation. Um, QAI, um, obviously uh, a tradition, I'm, I'm gonna try to break, break the ice with a quick question, but uh, start raising your hand and, and, uh, and, and let me know that you, if you want to ask a question. Um, Kei, I want to start from where you ended, which is, um, well, uh, when you talk about the bad, one of the things you stress is this uh, high level of debts by local governments uh, and other semi-state institutions. Talk about the future, you're talking about a new generation that is very willing to take on a lot of debt. Uh, so which is, which is this, the state debt is bad, uh, consumer yeah. is, is good, or, 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 or is that also potentially bad, and, and is that a risk factor for, the, for China? Uh, Whatever way it is, there's just going to be a lot of debt going forward. But I think what China now is suffering is a se severe deficit in demand coming from the consumer side. And so if that is shifted to the consumers because of better credit systems and financial system, I think it would help more because right now China has way more overcapacity and not a def a demand. That's where we're seeing a lot of deflation. So if I had to pick between the two, it would be shifting. But I do think that the new generation will keep the Chinese savings rate at bay. Uh, you know, the whole controversy of current account surplus and too much saving, I think from the look of it, it will change when they arrive. And there's not a lot of policies that can change the current generation's thinking. Uh, so one question up here, about halfway. Um, and then, okay, I'm gonna take three. Uh, so then, yeah, I meant you, but it's fine. But it's, it's gonna be next. Okay, uh, thank you so much for the presentations. It's really give a quite good uh, model, uh, a bit of a view of the model. And I'd like to ask about how the Chinese investments are going to be, uh, that are trying to be done to the developing, other developing countries, for example, like other emerging economies, such as the Southeast Asia. Is there going to be one of the projects that are China trying to push in order to maybe overcome the debt that are facing right now. Thank you. Maybe take, take three questions and then, uh, is it okay with you? Yeah, sure. Um, so thank you for your speech. And I wanted to ask you about, in Western economies, we also make bad investments on a major scale, like those big roads or too many cars. But we have the financial market to scrutinize those investments. And I feel like although there is a financial market in China, it is much more constrained and its ability to scrutinize those investments, especially made by state funds rather than private companies, this ability is limited. So my question is, what's the Chinese counterpart of this correction mechanism for bad investments, and how do you and do you think that it's going to be sustainable? As as you said, that Chinese growth trajectory switches from catching up 
to trying to move ahead. Thank you. Thank you very much. And there was one question here, and I forgot to ask um, questioners to state their name and affiliation. Thank you. Hi, Professor Jing. I'm a student in OSC Department of Government. And some scholars have argued that China, due to the demographic dividend, is served as a catalyst for the uh, growth of the economy in the past few years. And recently, the government adopted the third child policy, the second child policy, third child policy. And so do you think the aging population will be a big obstacle for the future of the economy in China, or will it fall into the circumstances like Korea and Japan? Thank, Thank you. you. Um, OK, I'll start with um, in surrounding countries. So look, you know, it's, there's been no doubt that Southeast Asia has, and along with others, has been a beneficiary of intense U.S.-China relations. Um, a lot of the investments, a lot of the manufacturing capacity, the diversity, de-risking, whatever you want to call it, has moved a lot of the activity um, outside of China. I do want to say that China is really big. You know, being a manufacturing um, factory for the world, it's really hard to really totally displace China. I don't think it's actually possible, but some of it is also also definitely happening because of the U.S.-China uh, 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 tension. And a lot of these countries are playing it very well, playing, playing their uh, um, uh, cards very well, asking for more investment from America, also asking for more investment uh, from China, and so forth. So I think that um, interregional and also interregional trade is going to pick up more going forward. So I do see that as a trend. Now, the financial system, as a second question, is really the bottleneck here. Something like 80% of credit is intermediated through, through banks in China. That's a typical developing country feature. Um, it's the opposite in the US, where direct capital markets really uh, play a very, very huge role. And that's very, very important for these um, uh, technology companies and, and companies and so forth. So I didn't get to mention this in the talk, but it's these precise institutional deficiencies of China that makes the local mayor economy even really relevant. Um, but less and less relevant going forward. But I don't see our financial system in China really evolving and getting better or improving uh, over time. So you're absolutely right that they're not going to be able to screen good projects. What do the state know? But the state now knows that it doesn't know much, which is why I talked about the evolution of their role. They're now leveraging social capital. They put in very, very little money. They're very constrained. So it's not actually about putting in a lot of money, but they're leveraging social capital, bring in um, private equity funds, venture funds, and presumably they know better where to invest. And they would be picking the more promising uh, companies, which they will eventually stake or help out. So it's that arduous process, not again, not through the financial system, um, that is both costly, but that is, I guess, the best they can do. And that again is an evolving uh, process. The third question is about demographics. Now, I'm of the minority view that demographics, aging, is not of the first order problem in China. Why? First of all, you've got a billion people who are still living under $300 per month. They're not really middle income by any uh, measure of international standards. The majority of these people look at living in rural areas are severely undereducated. And if you look at you know, the room for their growth, their productivity increase, their education, um, I think you know that's the first order, first order issue that I see. Not 0.5 percent reduction in labor force growth per year, although there will be some fiscal pressure. Now I talked about the cultural legacies. This one-child policy has had profound impact on the society. People don't want to have kids anymore. Maybe it's because habits have changed. Maybe it's because housing is too expensive. Maybe it's education that's becoming too expensive. But the government is trying very desperately to change that. But again, if you look at China today, what I think is to be a much more important problem is the massive skill and education mismatch in China. Hundreds of million college graduates, you know, basically without the skills that uh, matches with the economic structure. Thank you. OK, let's do three more from the audience. Uh, here, on here, uh, second line, second row, here. Uh, name, name and affiliation, please. Uh, hello, Professor Jin. I'm the master student from the LSE management department. 
you mentioned the mayor economy in the book. Uh, each mayor are compete with each, with each other by uh, increasing their GDP. But at present, the cities from south are the main economy center of the gravity in the China. And there is a huge disparity between the north and south. Um, especially reflecting economic growth and uh, industry production, investment, and consumption. I want to ask, what's your opinion on this phenomenon, and how can we achieve the balance between the south part and north part of China? Thank you. And one question in the one, two, three, four, five, six, seventh row. Uh, yes, yes, you're there, 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 yeah. Thank you very much. My name is Belinda. I'm a policy advisor on cli Chinese climate policy and diplomacy. Uh, thank you very much, Professor Jin, for the talk and especially also highlighting China's dominant role in EVs and other renewable technologies, which is, of course, met in the West by massive concerns and a de-risking agenda. So my question is, how can we build more resilient supply chains of green technologies because of course China has played a massive role in bringing down prices and accelerating the low carbon transition. So in other words, how do we de-risk supply chains without increasing climate risks? Thank you. Thank you. And then come to the person here in front because he bought the book. Thank you, Professor Jin. Um, my name is Xiao Ming. I work as an accountant for a bubble tea company. Uh, my question is this. You mentioned that there is a mismatch between the skills and the jobs available in the Chinese economy. How do you envisage, because China's upgrading itself, right, it's getting into areas like uh, very innovative AI, quantum computing and all that. How do you th see things changing and the job market changing uh, and, you know, eventually, hopefully, resulting in a match, uh, uh, more matches between the skills uh, and the jobs available? Yeah. Um, right, good. Um, good question about North and South. So what I found um, in some recent research is that there's a resource curse in China as well. The northern parts, western parts, with a lot of resources, what do they do? They don't develop technology. They don't do, they don't do you know, industry. They just sell uh, the, you know, the resources. If you look at a place like Shenzhen, it had absolutely nothing, nothing. Couldn't even do a lot of real estate. And um, they did, so they resorted to technology. So if you map this out in China, there is actually a negative relationship with resources, uh, abundance, and development or industry and technology. That's one thing. Second, I wouldn't leave out the cultural aspects of some of the differences between North and South. But again, this, it still holds that across really, you know, tens of thousands of local governments running around. I mean, there are many, many of them that have um, built their own local uh, empire. Um, let me take the mismatch question first. Um, look, there's going to be 20, so youth unemployment is north of 25% in China today. That's higher than the world average, which is about 14%. Uh, these are highly educated people. But there's also, it's not like there are no jobs around. There's going to be 25 million vacant jobs in manufacturing uh, going forward in the next three years in China. What's the issue? Well, these, these young people are really, really well educated. Their reservation wage is high. Um, they don't want to go and line up in a cigarette uh, uh, production factory, which many of them with master's degrees from Columbia had to do at some point. And so there, there's that kind of, you know, the, 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 where the Chinese econo economy today, which is still predominantly manufacturing and it aims to be a bigger Germany in smart manufacturing, it, it shows that you're moving towards still that kind of um, economy where you need people to operate machines in that particular vocational skill. So one of the pro ways to resolve that from the government is to vastly expand the quality and quantity of vocational skills, for instance. But that is um, a question. Look, you know, it's an excellent question about the balance that we have to achieve between de-risking, de including with China, diversifying, and still keeping up with the pace of the green transition, right? I think this is, I don't have much to comment on all that, but the fact that this is probably the only thing that is, 
you know, is a common goal or common project to work on between uh, U.S., uh, China, and of course uh, Europe. Uh, should we still be, you know, should European, you know, the Inflation Reduction Act in the U.S. or Europe, should we be pursuing some similar policies around uh, renewables? I mean, I don't know. In China, it's been a lot of redundancies and waste, but it also has accelerated that pace. So um, the cost-benefit is really hard to hard to evaluate. Thank you. I'm going to add three questions from the um, online audience. Um, one actually picks up on this last point on, uh, on unemployment. The question is by Brian Gregory. Is, is unemployment amongst youngsters um, going to derail the government uh, economic plans? Uh, in other words, I, I, I presume the question um, refers to potential political uh, unrest and difficulties for the government. I think it also links to this question about the mismatch, um, and I actually I take the opportunity to insert my own quick question. I mean, you have this picture here about super high tech and super the future and, and, and China leading the way in many new technologies. At the same time, you just said that we need more China needs more vocational uh, uh, training for people to actually um, work the machines in factories. So there seems to be a tension there as well, maybe, that maybe you want to address. Um, second question is, um, you know, it's about the resilience of, of China. Um, so should there be uh, a continuation of uh, glo global tensions, uh, potentially even war or, um, or uh, deepening of protectionism? Um, what's, what, what would happen to the Chinese economy if, if these things happen? And finally, a more factual question from Animesh Goshal, from, uh, who is an alum from the LSE, um, who is now in Chicago, and he is asking um, to clarify an aspect of the mayoral model, which is who is on the other side of this debt? So the mayor is taking all this debt, who is buying it? Very excellent questions. Um, I think there are a lot of tensions on, on this topic. And the other tension is demographics, right? On the other hand, you're worried about the aging population, not enough workers. So what is the Chinese government doing? They're now vastly doing industrial policy on robot, robots, robotics. Um, so China accounts for a huge share of uh, exports in world uh, uh, robotics. And we obviously, you know, we have studies on that. Um, so I think there, there are multiple things going on. Uh, the, the, when, when, when the direction is not really trying to mimic America, the knowledge-based, financialized economy, but really become a big and smart Germany, um, that's where you know, things are being steered. Um, if you leave it onto its own devices by the market, that's obviously the, the question. The Chinese government, in its mind, is afraid that a lot of things will be going into things like internet models and these business models that are not in high tech. Uh, the, the model of success for the Chinese government is that those kind of really high tech stuff. So in terms of vocational training, it's about, you know, workers that are relevant for that. But on back onto the really important political uh, question. The Chinese authorities are looking every day carefully at the new generation. I mean, they are really, they, they were very supportive of the administration, so they are really important politically. But I'd say that currently what is much more worrying is not so much the youth unemployment, and that comes back to some of this dynastic household uh, intergenerational risk sharing that we talked about, but really about real estate, because every Chinese person owns a real estate. Not everybody has a 23-year-old without a job. So if they let the real estate market really let it go and then prices really uh, uh, drop by 30%, that is, a, is more of a political threat than currently with the youth. Some of them believe that it's also a cyclical matter when the economy becomes better, um, this will be partly resolved. But they are keeping an eye uh, on the youth. In terms of resilience, look, you know, I, I think lots of governments are using protectionism, national, national security as an excuse to do old-style protectionism. We're seeing that around the world. Um, that's actually not really currently what China is doing. Um, uh, in terms of its opening up. Um, but in terms of, I think, you know, the real question behind this is military conflict and war. Um, look, I don't, I don't know if we can predict, I, I can't predict whether there's going to be a war or military conflict, although miscalculation is very, very um, uh, dangerous. But I just say one thing, which is the Chinese people, they get it. They get that peace is the absolute kind of 
foundation and basic condition for continued prosperity. And their reference point is still overwhelmingly on whether their kids can go to have a better job and then whether they can you know, have an urban apartment. So it's very, very practical. And with a one-child policy generation, um, the, the saying goes that you know, parents that only have one child, they're going to be very reluctant to see any kind of that you know, uh, conflict break out. So I think that is the basic attitude of the Chinese on how important peace is, and we tend to underestimate that. Um, on the other side is the commercial banks. Um, the state banks are local banks, state banks are absorbing the, the local government debt, and part of it is to give them time to resolve it on themselves, uh, uh, by themselves. Maybe one last uh, round, yes. Um, here, on the left. Here, yeah, go, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, hi, thank you very much for your talk. Uh, I'm an LSE alumni. Um, so my question is a bit theoretical, but um, hopefully it's answerable. Um, so you talked about the China model being inefficient but stable. But I was thinking, what keeps it stable? Um, because as you, as you mentioned, there are so many inefficiencies and the government trying to intervene in you know, a lot of policies and the markets. Um, so it seems to me that you know, there needs to be some sort of forces to keep it stable for a long time. And we have seen that the China economy has been stable. So can you just expand a little bit on uh, why the model is stable, please? Okay. OK, here in the middle. Hi, I'm interrupting this event to tell you about another awesome LSE podcast that we think you'd enjoy. LSE IQ ask social scientists and other experts to answer one intelligent question. Like, why do people believe in conspiracy theories? Or, can we afford the super rich? Come check us out. Just search for LSE IQ wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the event. Hello, um, thanks for the talk. Um, I'm a second year economic student here. Um, my question is about the book more. So, having like published a book, say like last year, like April-ish, I think, and then you probably written it sometime before it. And now having experienced the rest of 2023 and a bit of 2024 now, uh, would there be any topics inside or main themes that you maybe change a bit or would you? <laughs> I, mean, no, I mean, if you have the chance to write like a new edition, right? Would you be like doubling down on any ideas inside or maybe having different views in different chapters, etc.? You have to wait for the next book. <laughs> uh, gentleman up there. Yeah, yeah. Hello, my name's Vivek. I head up economics and research for Pacific Basin Shipping. Uh, we're a shipping company that ships a lot of dry bulk commodities to China. Uh, so things like iron ore, coal, grains, bauxite, copper concentrates, that kind of thing. Um, last year in 2023, everything I read uh, was about how poorly the economy was performing. Yet growth in dry bulk imports was an absolute record year. Uh, it was even more than 2009 uh, when, when, when China did a big bazooka stimulus. So um, I haven't been able to find anyone that can explain that dichotomy you know, between poor, poor economic data on the one hand, yet record dry bulk imports on, on the other hand. Not just record dry bulk imports, but record growth in dry bulk imports. You know? So what, 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 what's going on? How, do you, how, how can we explain it? Okay, thank you. Mm. Was that three? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, uh, stable, uh, look, you know, we don't really know what's going to happen in the future, but at least for the 40 years we haven't had a major financial implosion, as I mentioned. And that also comes back to the various levers, the, the huge apparatus that the government can control. And I mentioned this coordination, right? The state can co coordinate the state banks, again, part of this uh, government, uh, the borrowers and lenders. They have lots of different tools. Unless it's a perfect storm, 
okay, where you know all the state banks are failing, and the you know, real estate is just imploding, and everything is just happening all at the same time, they have some leeway uh, to, uh, to to you know to, to make it. Um, uh, like for instance, the crisis, the financial crisis is a crisis of confidence normally, but the central bank is still a very credible uh, lender of last resort and does all that coordination for so stable in the sense that also they can change policy very very quickly. Right, as I mentioned, without the political impediment uh, and change policies and adapt and adjust fairly quickly. Uh, so I wouldn't read anything as kind of permanent, any of these policies as permanent uh, in that sense. Um, the question of about 2023, I think a lot of what we're seeing today is exactly the repercussions of the model, right? I, I don't think we should be reading this huge debt, the real estate craze, the kind of um, slowing down economy as somehow it's a new thing. It's just the other side of that model. So in that sense, if I were to uh, write an extended version that would be more applicable to 2023, 2024, I would probably emphasize a bit more on exactly why the bad uh, comes out so vividly. Uh, but again, not from some new thing, but it's just um, just a side effect or symptoms of that, that, that same uh, model. Um, if I understood the question about the dichotomy between why commodities was doing fairly well, is that right, and the slowing down economy, um, I did. I did also hear that you know companies like Rio Tinto, that that the Chinese demand for commodities um, was still solid. Look, you know, I think first of all, the Chinese government compensates that this the problem of the economy not by having a huge stimulus on the demand side, but. Um, doing lots more infrastructure investment and some of this new type of infrastructure that I mentioned re around renewables and data centers and so forth. I don't know if that is part of the answer to this, but what we're seeing is a really, really problematic economy and it's, a, it's just a demand problem. Uh, the Chinese government thinks it's a structural problem and wants to solve it from the supply side where it's, they're very reluctant to hand out to do the kind of traditional Keynesian stimulus and that is very much a preference of the government. So we are seeing a really faltering economy on the demand side that trying to be made up through you know, various fiscal policy. That's the best I can try to understand this. But I'd, I'd say that despite your optimism, uh, the Chinese economy is uh, in pretty, pretty bad shape currently. Okay, I wasn't expecting to end up on that note, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> thank you very much, Keio. It was a really, really interesting evening. Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to the LSE Events Podcast on your favourite podcast app and help other listeners discover us by leaving a review. Visit lse.ac.uk forward slash events to find out what's on next. We hope you join us at another LSE event soon.